Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, I want to share with you what I think is the secret to all good relationships. And with relationships being at the very heart of everything from business to our personal lives, this is a skill I learned in Formula One, but one that now helps me every single day. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things. You only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast with me, Mark Priestley. Thank you, as ever, for joining me, wherever it is you're joining from, whatever it is you're up to whilst listening to this, whoever it is you're with, wherever you are in the world, thank you very, very much. I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to spend with me. It means a lot. Now, this week, what I want to get into is something that we've touched on a little bit over recent times. We've talked about communication. Uh, in a few episodes recently, I've talked about my belief that communication is truly multi-layered and that the very best communication kind of embraces all of those different layers. That's how we get the most effective communication by utilizing all of the layers that we have available to us in that process. This week, I want to talk about perhaps another one of those layers, but perhaps one of the layers that is often misunderstood, that's often not necessarily associated with the idea of communication. And that particular skill, that particular side of my communication model is the idea of listening, being a good listener. Now, I firmly believe that this is one of the keys, as I said at the beginning, the keys to forming good relationships and maintaining good relationships. And the reason that's important is that relationships are at the basis of everything. They are literally, as human beings, everything we do is centered around relationships in some form or another. I said in the introduction there, I learned the skill of listening, and it is a skill. It's a skill that can be practiced, can be developed, can be learnt, that we can improve upon by working on our listening skills. And I went through a process on a journey like that through my time in Formula One. It became very evident that listening was a really important part of that communication process. Now, listening is not often something that you would immediately associate with being a good communicator because people tend to jump to the conclusion that communicating is all on the part of the person giving out the message, the person that's speaking, the person that is saying something or doing something because they want to get a message across. But actually, a big part of that process 50% of that process is the person on the other end of that communication. It's the listener. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter how many layers of communication you employ as the person giving out the message, if the person you're sending that message to doesn't receive it or doesn't understand it, doesn't hear it properly, if they don't get it, well, what was the point of your communication? It didn't work. You can have all the skills in language, you can use body language, you can utilise all of those other tools that we've talked about in recent weeks, but if the message doesn't get to its intended recipient, that message has failed, that communication has failed. And the reason that listening is important is not just for the person that's receiving that message in that context, but as the communicator, as the person who has something to say, quite often, very often in fact, we overlook the point of listening to the person that we want to communicate to, to understand exactly what we should be communicating in the first place. So listening for me is a vital part of the communication network and something that so many people overlook. Now, the reason that for me, it became a big deal in Formula One is that we started to study communication, as I've touched on in in previous episodes, we began to really explore it. We began to delve into it, into the science behind communicating. Because communication was absolutely critical to our mission, we had to get messages to the right people at the right times. We had to have those messages understood. 
We had to learn from the people that we were listening to to be able to deliver whatever it was they needed. And that was really where my journey of learning to become a better listener started in Formula One when I had communications with drivers. If I was sitting in a debrief with a driver, of course, that driver has probably been out in the car, been out in a session or in a race, and they have a huge amount of information immediately after that session or immediately when they get out of the car that's all fresh in their memory. It's all in their minds. There is a huge amount of data that I have access to as an engineer. There's a huge amount of information, technical information. Computer screens display massive amounts of data in all types of graphical forms to make it easy to understand. We can learn and know a huge amount about what's going on with the car over the course of, of any lap, any time the car turns a wheel. Yet the driver, who's the one guy on board that car when it's out doing its thing, of course, has a completely different set of experiences to the ones that I can ever appreciate having. I can know what ride heights are, are, are currently working on the car. I can know the tire pressures. I can know a multitude of engine parameters. What I can't know is how it feels to be behind the wheel. I can't understand or have an understanding fully, at least, of exactly what that feels like. When the car begins to break traction coming out of a corner, what does it feel like? If a car hits a bump on the circuit and it just unsettles the rear and affects a gear change, what does that feel like? Is there a way that I can do something with the car from an engineering point of view, from a technical point of view, to overcome a negative feeling that the driver has? Or to produce more positive feelings that the driver wants through changing things on the car? The data will give me huge clues to go down that path and send me in the right direction. But the information coming from the driver, the feelings that that driver had, the experience the driver felt whilst behind the wheel. Sometimes even the emotions that those feelings created can also be a really important part of me putting together that puzzle to be able to then deliver something that that driver and that car needs to get the very best out of it. To be able to do that, I need to listen to what that driver has to say. Now, that might seem like the most obvious statement in the world, but there's a big difference between listening and really listening hearing something and properly listening, zoning in and listening. Listening as a skill, as I said, something that we can practice and develop and get better at, is a critical part of that process. And if we listen only at a shallow depth, we will hear most of that stuff coming in through our ears. Physically, that those sounds, those vibrations, those frequencies will travel in through our ears. We're hearing it to some extent. But listening to what those frequencies and communications mean, listening to what's behind them is another story altogether. And it's something that in the modern day, in all walks of life, we are becoming worse and worse at. Now, when that driver climbs out of the car and he's full of pent up emotion, maybe frustration, maybe elation, if it's gone well, there is emotion behind all of those things. But the memories from what he felt when he was in the car are fresh. And so I have to extract that. I have to go through that debrief process and I have to get as much information from that driver as possible. Now, because that driver is full of pent up emotion, because adrenaline is still high, sometimes it comes out in the, not in chronological order. It doesn't come out in the most recognizable way every single time. Sometimes when emotion's high, he is firing information out in all kinds of orders, mixed in with a bit of frustration and emotion, complaining about a steward, complaining about another driver, perhaps. But in amongst all of that is some key information that might help me to understand what I need to find out. So I've got to listen beyond the, the noise that might be coming to find the bits of information that are useful to the process in hand. Now, of course, I'm talking here about a particular type of listening. I'm going to go on to expand on what I mean by listening on a broader scale in a moment. But in that context, in that situation where I'm talking to a driver, trying to extract information from him or trying to understand the information coming from him, I need to be fully attentive and alert. And this is really one of the keys to listening. And you can apply this to everything in your life. You can apply this to a conversation you have with your wife or husband, with your children, with your colleagues at work. The more attentive and focused 
on listening we can be, it has a number of really positive and really key effects in this kind of communication transaction. First of all, if I'm being attentive, if I'm being focused, if I am present in that moment and doing nothing else other than listening to what's coming across from the other side of this communication, if I am in that place, first of all, of course, I absorb more information. I literally, I hear more of it. I understand more of it. I can make notes as I go. I'm hearing everything that's coming in because I'm not being distracted. But the other side to that is that I am giving a signal to the person that I'm listening to that I am also fully focused and attentive. And in Formula One terms, that's really important because I need that driver to feel like everything that he or she is saying is coming across and being heard. They need to feel like they're being heard and they're being listened to because they have just got out the car. They are full of information and they don't have the spare capacity to sometimes deliver that in the most coherent and ordered fashion. But they need to know that however they can give that information out, even if it's at 100 miles an hour, I am there fully focused and I am only there to listen to them in that moment. I am taking it all in. So their words are not wasted. Those feelings that are fresh are not being wasted and lost. I am hearing them because I'm listening. Now, in the context of our lives outside of Formula One, let's just jump between the two. I've talked about what it means to a Formula One driver. Imagine that same scenario when you're talking to your child. When your child comes to you as a parent and says, mom or dad, I've got something I need to tell you. This happened at school today. Now, it's so easy, and I have no idea we've all done it. I've definitely done it. It's so easy to be distracted and only half listen in those moments. And what I mean is when your child is sitting there telling you about your day, their day at school and you go, yeah, tell me about it. If you're still looking at your phone whilst they're talking, there is no way you're either listening or telling your child that you're listening. That's the most obvious thing to be staring at a phone or scrolling whilst somebody's telling you something I personally happen to think is incredibly rude and is showing the absolute opposite of what I just talked about. You're giving a signal to the child that you don't really care. You're not really interested. And it might be something to them that's incredibly important like the driver getting out of the car, when that driver wants to tell you about a particular moment that he felt at turn 14 on a bump on the entry point to the corner, to him that's incredibly important. It's a really powerful, important bit of information because it might set up the rest of that corner. It might transform the way the car behaves going into that corner and he needs me to understand exactly what he's feeling when he hits that bump or when he leans on the car and it breaks away just a little bit too early or it rolls a little bit too much. He needs me to hear that, to 100% hear that so that I can factor that into the changes I need to make. And he needs to know that I've heard it when he's saying it. It's the same thing for your child. When your child is telling you about something that in your world might be so mundane and insignificant, to them, it could be the most important thing in the world. Where they had a, an interaction in the playground or they made a new friend today or the teacher said something great to them when they put their hand up and answered a question. If you're not listening to that, when the big moment comes, when they drop the bombshell of what happened... When I put my hand up, mum, and the teacher told me that I was amazing, that I got it right, and she was really impressed. Imagine the feeling your child has when they're delivering that information. And if you're only half listening, or if you're staring at your phone, that bombshell moment, the mic drop that this kid is waiting to deliver to you is lost. It's gone. And the impact of that can be way more far reaching than you ever can imagine. That feeling of not being heard of not being listened to, particularly as a child in these formative years, can start to really formulate their vision of the world, start to form a vision of themselves. I mean, if you expand it and extrapolate the, the information that that child will be feeling from an interaction like that, particularly if it happens over and over again, you can see that it's not too much of a stretch to eventually get to a point where that child starts to feel insignificant where they don't feel valued, they don't feel worthy, they don't feel like they're enough. The information that they wanted to tell you, no one's interested. Now imagine if they went through life, and this is an extreme example I know, but imagine if they go through life having multiple interactions like that with the person who they are supposed to trust most in the world, 
who loves them and is the one person they desperately wanted to tell that information to. And yet they weren't listening. Imagine how that manifests itself later in life as that child goes through teenage years and starts to encounter all kinds of difficulties and challenges with life as they're growing up, as they're developing. Imagine if they get similar reactions to that from the people around them when they're having real problems and challenges that they're facing. Imagine if no one's hearing them or even if they just perceive that no one's hearing them. Imagine the psychological impact that can have and that can literally carry through life. That can transform the type of person that that teenager emerges into in adulthood. And this might sound extreme and so far-fetched. It isn't. These are the kinds of interactions that people remember subconsciously. These are the moments that form us as humans as we move through life. And so that's why listening in those moments is incredibly important. And I'm talking about not just putting your phone down. I'm talking about looking into the eye of the child or the person that's talking to you. I'm talking about clearing any other thoughts from your mind and focusing not on what you're having for dinner tonight, not on who you got to call next, not on a meeting that might be coming up that afternoon, but looking into the eyes of your colleague, of your wife, your husband, your child, looking into the eyes of a Formula One driver and being attentive being 100% present so that all of that information, all of their multiple layers of communication, body language, facial expressions, tone and intonation, plus, of course, the words coming out of their mouths, all of those layers are being absorbed by you because you are there and present and focused. Being a good listener is beneficial to both the person speaking and the person listening, the person hearing. It's beneficial in the most enormous ways. As I said earlier, the idea of getting that information, which can be useful, is huge. But the feeling that somebody else gets when they know they're being heard is also really powerful. It's actually an innate human need. As a species, we need to feel heard. We need to feel like we're part of something. We're tribal animals. We need to feel like we're part of the group and we need to feel a valued member of that group. And to do that, we need to feel heard when we've got something to say. If we ask somebody if they've got a moment for a a chat, we need to know that that chat is worthy. It's worthwhile having. Not that it's just a one-way street of communication that actually the, the other end of it is not listening to. That applies to Formula One driver debriefs as much as it does to a parent and their child. That feeling that we get when we get those little chemicals buzzing around our brain, when someone is listening to us, when we know they're listening and they're reacting in the right ways. When the child says, the teacher said I was amazing in class today because I got a question right. Your reaction as the listener, because that information has been absorbed, is so powerful. When your face lights up, when your eyes brighten and you get that big smile on your face because you've heard what they've said, The impact that has on the child is phenomenal. It's also, by the way, having a massive impact on you, the listener, because the very fact your face has lit up, your eyes have brightened, you've got this big smile, means that you're suddenly feeling this feeling of love, this feeling of pride inside because you've heard what they've got to say. So listening is an incredibly powerful part of the communication process. Now, in Formula One terms, if we go back to our Formula One driver debrief as an example, not only are we listening for information coming from the driver, but we're also listening to try and find out the ways in which we were able to help this driver. There might be not just technical things we can do, but there might be emotional needs that driver has. If the driver is pent up with frustration because somebody he feels cut him up on track and all he's done in the first five minutes of that debrief is shout and scream about the standards of driving on track from another particular driver or shout and scream about the stewards we can pick up on that of course that he is frustrated that if he's frustrated to that level where he's still going on about it now that's a serious deep-rooted frustration and that may well if we're not careful carry over into tomorrow's race, for example, if he's done that after qualifying. Part of our job as a listener is to understand the emotion behind the words. What what emotions lie there? Is it frustration? Is it anger? 
And if there is anger or frustration, really, is he angry at somebody else or is he angry at something he's done? Did he actually make a mistake? And it's that anger that's at the deep-rooted heart of all this, and yet it's coming out as anger towards somebody else. The reason that's important for us to try and determine is because if we want to try and help that driver, and of course that's exactly what we need to try and do, if we want to do that, we need to understand what lies behind these emotive comments that might be coming out of his mouth. If it's anger at himself, maybe that's something that afterwards when he's calmed down, we can take him to one side and we can have a conversation We can look at the moment he might have made that mistake in the data and we can perhaps help to try and explain it to him, explain why it happened, how it happened, how he might prevent it from happening again. And that might lead on to a conversation about how that frustration, maybe it came from that mistake. Maybe the mistake was what started all of this and actually the person who cut them up or they interpreted them cutting him up wasn't really the thing that was at the heart of the problem here. If we can start to get to the root of problems by listening, we might be able to offer advice. We might be able to offer help. The Formula One engineer and the engineering team around a driver is not only there to offer technical support. We are also the trusted confidants around that driver. There is a very small circle of people that a Formula One driver trusts in life as well as in Formula One. They don't have a huge circle of friends, certainly not around them at the racetrack. And they don't have their parents always there. They don't have a wife or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife. They don't always have a loved, trusted person. That job might often fall to the mechanics, the engineers, who are also colleagues but also friends, who can support that driver. And by listening and trying to understand what that driver's feeling, we're able to offer a better level of support and help. That support and help, even if it's emotional, can literally translate into lap time. That can help us to win a Grand Prix, because when the driver goes into the next session, goes into the race in a better frame of mind, because we've managed to talk through the problems that he had in qualifying, we got to the bottom of what was lying behind that frustration and anger, and we've talked it out. We've cleared it out of his memory banks and therefore we go into the race in a far better, far better situation that will definitely translate into better performance. When our minds are not clouded by these powerful emotions like frustration, like anger, we perform at a higher level. We have clearer capacity to focus on the job in hand than we otherwise would do if part of our focus is on somebody else who we determine has done something wrong to us. So listening is at the heart of all of that. And that, again, goes exactly, crosses exactly over to our everyday. Go back to the parent and child example. Same things happen. Children and Formula One drivers have so much in common, you wouldn't believe. They often behave very similarly in many cases. But by listening to your child, not just the words, but what lies behind the words, like we talked about in recent weeks, looking at body language is a great example of doing this. But by listening and looking at all of those multiple layers of communication in depth, but with a focus and attention that shows that we are 100% present in the moment, we're able to garner so much more information that may then be able to be utilised to help that person overcome whatever problem they might be facing. Listening is at the heart of that. Now, the other part of this whole listening idea is sometimes when you're in a two-way communication, a conversation with somebody, particularly when somebody has asked you for a chat, a trusted person has asked you if they can tell you a problem they're facing. They want to talk to you. If you're that person for somebody, first of all, that's a very privileged position to be in. That's something that you should be honoured that somebody trusts you enough to want to share some personal information, a personal problem or challenge with you. That's important. Appreciate that. Don't take that for granted because that will come across in any response you have. But the idea of listening in that situation is just that. Sometimes just listening is absolutely what the other person needs. Sometimes listening to be able to respond is perfect. In Formula One terms, when the driver's giving us information, I will listen for as long as I have to. I'll let him spout and get all that information out in this flurry, this chaotic mess sometimes. I need to absorb it all, take notes as I go. 
only at the very end of that, when the driver's run out of words, run out of things to say, when he stopped, only at that point, and only when I'm sure he's stopped and he's had enough, will I then offer some kind of response. And that, I think, is often something that's overlooked too. How often do we have a set of communications, a conversation, where the person who's talking to you, who wants to get something off their chest, talk through a problem, is talking away, and there's an innate feeling or a need to respond to that person. Now, I firmly believe that actually listening as a skill is best done in its entirety without feeling the need to respond immediately. There are many occasions when a normal conversation absolutely needs response. And conversations in life flow in the most incredible, chaotic ways sometimes. We often crash over the end of the person's sentence who's speaking before us to get our words in. To find a, find a way into the conversation, we'll often over, we'll talk over somebody, we'll jump in. Or we'll be itching to get some kind, of, some kind of response in when somebody's still talking at us. We're thinking about what we're going to say as they're still talking. Now that means we're not listening. If we're thinking about our response while somebody's talking to us, we are not listening. That's not practicing good intent listening. We shouldn't be thinking about response because we cannot do that whilst also absorbing all of the information, whilst being attentive and focused. If our minds are thinking about how we're going to respond to what the other person's saying, that will come across in our facial expressions. It will come across in our body language. Our brain will be elsewhere, which means we're not focused on what's being said to us. So sometimes what I'm trying to say is that we have to just listen and that's it. Nothing more than that. Don't feel the need to always offer a response to every single sentence that comes out, to every problem. We can absolutely offer a response, and sometimes that's required. If the person is looking for a response, then we should be there to give it to them. But what sometimes and quite often happens is that somebody just wants to vent, wants to get something off their chest, a little bit like my Formula One driver example. And in that situation, if I jump in after the first sentence, not only do I change the course of their trajectory in their communication, because I'll distract them from what they were going to say by coming up with a new sentence on my part, I'll distract what was going to be said, and that changes the direction of the entire interaction. But also, I am not listening to what's being said, and they know it. So I think sometimes just sitting and listening and taking the whole thing in, in its entirety, before you then consider whether a response is required and if it's the right thing to do. And again, going back to the scenario of the parent and child, just using this as an example, the same thing applies. If your child wants to talk to you, knowing they've got a space to be able to communicate, knowing that they have got a complete period of time and it might be seconds, it might be a minute, it might be more. But they've got a period of time when they are able to just say what they want to say. Allowing them to stop and pause and think about what they want to say next. But just being there to listen can be such a powerful tool for both parties. So not feeling the need to immediately respond, I think, is a key part of learning to be a good listener. Judging over time as you get better at this, when it is, uh, when a response is required, how quickly a response might be required, and sometimes you might want to respond a day or two later. You might want to just sit and listen to the whole thing, and when they get to the end, when they finish talking, ask that person, are you finished? Is there anything else you'd like to tell me? Is there anything else that you'd like to say? You can be supportive. You can say, I'm sorry you're feeling these things. I'm sorry that you had to go through this. Or if it's positive, I'm really pleased that this is happening to you. This is amazing. I hope you feel great. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Keep the conversation open-ended. Give that signal to the other person that you're there to listen. Nothing more than that. You are there to listen. So if they want to say more, you're still there and able and willing to listen to more if they've got it. People quite often can become self-conscious about how much they talk, how much they want to say. If a conversation becomes one-sided, partly because of the way we've evolved as humans and the way our communication today is often seen as being normal, it's very much two-way. It's an interaction. 
It is frenetic and it's frantic and we crash over each other. We jump in from one side to the other. We go back and forwards. And so in the beginning, it can feel strange to have a one-sided communication with a good listener on the other end of that. And as a result of that, the communicator can often feel self-conscious about talking for too long. I can feel self-conscious that this feels weird because it's only them that's done any talking. And so with the listener being able to say, this is great. I'm so pleased that you've told me this stuff. I feel honoured you've decided to share this with me. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Words like that can break down those barriers and open people up to saying more. I would always say that with a driver. I would never end a conversation with a driver at the point where he stops talking. I would always, at the end of that interaction, say, is there anything else that you want to say? Is there anything else that you'd like to get off your chest? Anything else you remember? Has anything come to you? And if it does come to you, just come back. I'm always here to listen. Words like that are really important. When you're looking into somebody's eyes so they know that you mean it, so they know you're not in any way distracted, even thinking about anything else. They know they've got a conduit they can always come to, trusted, where they can be vulnerable and open and say whatever they want to say, knowing that I will set some time aside to be a good listener for them. We all need good listeners. We all need people to listen to our story at times. Sometimes we need nothing back from that person other than for them to listen to our story, because that can be the therapy that we need. Speaking our story out loud, speaking about our challenges out loud to somebody who we know is 100% listening to what we're saying is a really valuable process, a valuable experience for both parties and can be the absolute heart, the key to finding solutions to problems. As I said, the response doesn't have to be immediate, but by taking in that information, then maybe even going away and processing it, taking some time to think about all that information that you've absorbed, and then perhaps giving a response when you feel the time's right, when they've either calmed down or emotion has levelled out a little bit, adrenaline may have seeped away. For a Formula One driver, there was very little point in me talking about solutions to problems when they are still sweaty, their hair's dishevelled, they've just taken the crash helmet off and they're angry or frustrated or elated or whatever it was. The solution part came later. I would take in the information, I would listen and I would go away with that information to process it, to analyse it, to discuss it with my colleagues before then collectively formulating a response and coming back together with that driver to then talk about what we decided or what we thought could help. And that conversation was a very different one. That part of the process of the communication was much more of a two-way communication. Of course, the driver needed to show the same listening skills back to me and my colleagues when we're delivering our findings and we're delivering our suggestions and what might improve things. He has to listen, of course. He has to take in what we're going to say. But there's also the opportunity then, because we want a response from him, to be able to fine-tune those suggestions. If I say, right, well, I think we need to change the rear anti-roll bar, go one step stiffer on the rear anti-roll bar, because that might help this rolling into the corner, which is upsetting the balance of the car, breaking traction on one particular tyre, for example. He might be able to say, well, listen, I understand why you're doing that. That makes total sense. However, there was this other thing where when it started to roll, if it doesn't roll, it starts to feel like it just breaks away too early. I don't get enough purchase on the outside tyre and I don't feel I can lean on the car as much. And that might then allow me and my colleagues to go back and, and refine what we were thinking, to make some other ideas or put some other suggestions forward. That becomes a two-way conversation. Listening is still absolutely crucial in all of these things. In every communication, by the way, in life, listening is critical. We don't do it very well in most walks of life today. We've become terrible listeners in, in reality. And that's why I firmly believe that learning to be a good listener, practicing being a good listener, and you can practice this stuff every day, every moment of every day. Every time your child says something to you, stop what you're doing and listen. The power that that can create in both of you, in the relationship between you, can be phenomenal. Practice it with your partner. When your partner comes home from work and you say, how was your day? 
If you say, how was your day, but then turn around and carry on cooking the dinner or carry on doing whatever it was you were doing, you're not listening. And your partner knows you're not listening. So why would they go into any depth about what they say? How many times do you say when your partner comes home from work, how was your day, dear? And your partner says, fine, it was great. They're saying that because they can see that you're distracted, that you're not really listening, that you don't want the full blown explanation of how their day was because you're already turned away and you're doing something else. Or that could be the reason. What about if you said, how was your day, darling? Let's go and sit down on the sofa for 10 minutes. Tell me all about it. I wonder what would happen then. Because in that moment, you're putting everything to one side. You put your phone down. You take some time. You're dedicating some time. And you bring your partner over to the sofa. And you sit down. You get comfy. You look into each other's eyes. And you say, how was it? What happened today? Tell me about your day. And I wonder what would happen in many relationships around the world if we did this. And then that person does go into some incredible detail and depth about what happened that day. And at the end of that process, they could reciprocate. How was your day? You tell me about what happened in your day today. That interaction, that exchange might last 10 minutes. You could make it 20 minutes. You could make it as long as you like, quite frankly. But I wonder what the impact would be on the relationship between those two people if you did that consistently over time. Instead of the alternative, how was your day, darling? Yeah, fine. How was yours? Yeah, fine. And on you go. And what was the point of that interaction? What did anybody gain from that interaction? Nothing. It was a habitual interaction that was almost a waste of breath, quite frankly, because it means and meant nothing. Nobody learned anything from it. Nobody heard anything. Nobody got an insight into what had happened in that person's day. And so if there had been challenges or difficulties or if things had gone incredibly well, neither party knows about it. And if we know more about the people that we love, we get to know them at a deeper level because of exchanges like that. The relationship becomes stronger. It gets deeper. That's the same reason, exactly the same reason that in Formula One, we have to practice good listening when we're talking to a driver because the relationship gets stronger. And when that relationship gets stronger between engineer and driver or engineering team and driver, the productivity gets better. The performance is enhanced. And ultimately, we will get closer to winning races if we can practice good listening and build those relationships. That is literally a fact. And if you apply that to every single relationship you have, the same applies. If you become better listeners at work and you build relationships amongst colleagues, amongst teams at work, the performance will be greater. By listening to interactions, by engaging, focused and attentive in those interactions, the relationships will start to grow. And when the relationships grow and the bonds are formed, the performance is improved. That is simply a fact. So when we're looking to improve the performance of our companies, it starts here. Communication and relationships is at the heart of it. I said at the beginning of this podcast, relationships are at the heart of everything we do. Whether you are a Formula One team, whether you're a company in the world of any single industry, or whether you're an individual having relationships on a romantic level or with family members, with friends even, those are all relationships. And those relationships have a, an enormous effect on the rest of your life. The quality of those relationships have a profound effect on your well-being, on your mental health. It can often benefit your physical health in the same way. And all of those elements feed directly into your performance level, whether it's at work or on a personal scale. It doesn't matter. Performance has all of these contributing factors and well-being, health, relationships are all part of those factors that feed into that performance level. And being a good communicator and especially being a good listener can absolutely trigger that and make that work for you rather than against you if you don't get it right. Okay, I think we'll end listening for this part of the podcast there. We'll stop there and want to move it on to something else. Before I do, I just want a quick reminder uh, to give us a shout out, have some kind of interaction with the podcast, if in any way you can, by following, subscribing, um, by giving us a review, 
uh, or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store, please, please, please makes a huge difference. I say it every week, but I'm saying it because I'm desperately trying to grow this podcast. I love this podcast. I love doing it. It's almost like therapy for me. And I know that it works in the same way for many of you. I know that because you tell me, and I'm so grateful to those of you who have told me recently, it means the world. Please continue to do that. But to grow the podcast, I need people to know about it. There are a number of people out there that I know could benefit from the things that I have learned in Formula One, the things that I share here on this podcast platform. And yet at the moment, they don't know about the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. You can help me with that. And I would really appreciate it if you could share the podcast, subscribe, tell somebody about it, pass it around your WhatsApp groups, tell your friends, tell your families in any way you can help. I would really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. Right. Uh, I want to move on then to my second topic for today. And this one is in relation, I guess, to what's been going on in Formula One to some extent. Um, I want to talk about the idea of admitting when you're wrong. Something that is a difficult thing to do, no question. We all find it difficult at times. Uh, Some things are harder to admit than others. And the reason I'm bringing it up today is because I was struck by the honesty and humility that Toto Wolff and Mercedes have come out with in admitting that they have got their car wrong. Not just that they got this car wrong, but they got it wrong last year as well. They persisted with this idea of a slightly different or a very different concept aerodynamically to every other car on the grid. They firmly believed they were doing things right, but the reality is they've got it wrong. Now, that has cost probably hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds. That's big. That's a serious mistake. And it's cost the well-being or at least the happiness. It's cost the performance of a team of a thousand people from the engine department, from the uh, chassis department at Brixley and Braxworth at Brackworth, Brixworth and Brackley. <laughs> uh, it's cost the probably the relations had knock on effects rather to the relationships of all of those people when they go home from work every day, having had another disastrous weekend, how they then go into their homes and their families feeling down, feeling perhaps a little bit depressed, feeling like they've all let each other down or like they've been let down by the team. They are not enjoying the success they've become used to over the past seven or eight years. It's actually been a massive fall from grace. And it's because they got it wrong. Now, a number of people have been saying they've got it wrong for quite some time. Commentators, uh, observers, fans have been looking at the Mercedes car over the course of last year and again, the start of this year and saying, well, really, could they still be onto something here? But given that everyone else, all of the other leading cars have gone down a very different route and are showing pretty good performance. Mercedes have had to come to the conclusion that even though the numbers they were getting somehow from their own systems, their own simulation tools and wind tunnel, somehow those numbers, which looked like they were on the right track, were wrong. And it's put them very firmly on the wrong track. And now they're having to massively backpedal. It's almost certainly going to mean that this season is effectively a write-off for them. Another one. How long can they afford to do that for? Will they be able to keep Lewis Hamilton if they have to write off yet another season of bad performance? Another season where there is no way Lewis Hamilton will win a world championship. Probably the one thing Lewis Hamilton is craving before he finally hangs up his driving gloves. So this mistake potentially is far reaching and has been far reaching and continues to be far reaching. But I was struck by the fact that a huge organisation that has to answer to shareholders, that has to answer to millions of fans, that has to answer to a lead driver who is on the brink of hopefully signing a new contract, they had to admit they had made a massive mistake and got it wrong. And for that, I had total respect. It showed a humility that most big organisations, particularly ones that have had so much success recently, would never do. I think that's the part that struck me most. And this is where I want to draw some parallels and lessons for you and I in our lives. Because when I heard what Toto Wolff had to say, when I heard this admission, this acceptance that they had made a massive mistake and they were going to have to backpedal 
and redesign the car and come up with something new and probably go down the route that Red Bull have gone down, that Aston Martin have gone down, following a different path, the path that others have gone down. They will have to copy to some extent. They will have to be led by their main rivals, something that's a horrible thing to have to admit to, something that would go against everything Mercedes stands for as a Formula One team. A team that's dominated the sport for so long and now they're having to accept that they might have to have a look at what their rivals have done, throw out what they have done over the past couple of years and start to follow everyone else. No innovative tech-driven industry or company in an industry ever wants to accept that that is okay. And yet that's the position Mercedes find themselves in. And more importantly, they've now publicly admitted it. That's hard to do. And as I said, I have respect for it. And the reason that I wanted to bring it up today is because I want to talk about the benefits of doing that. When I heard Toto saying these things and being this open and honest, I had an enormous sense of respect for him and for the team. It showed massive humility and humbleness from one of the most powerful forces in this sport. A force that in the past seven or eight years, I, along with almost everyone else in Formula One, have looked at them and said, look, these are the class leading people in our sport. If we want to know how to run a Formula One team, you look at Mercedes. They have nailed it, smashed it, dominated to an incredible level with unprecedented levels of success. And here they are accepting that other people, their bitter rivals at Red Bull, have done it way better. I have to take my hat off for that. Now, if that's how I felt when I heard that, that statement or that press release or that interview from Toto Wolf, and I imagine many of you would have seen and felt similar things, whether you're a Mercedes fan or otherwise, you have to take your hat off to what they're saying there. If that's what we feel when we hear that, that same feeling will be applied to you if you have to ex admit making a mistake in your life. And we all make them. We make them all the time. There is not one person listening to this that's never made a mistake. Every one of you will continue to make mistakes. Some of them will be big, significant ones. And yet if you can find a way to admit it, to openly admit it, to accept it, and to openly talk about the fact you made a mistake, I'm sure it will have a number of benefits. A, the people around you, I'm sure, will feel those same feelings that I and many of you will have felt towards Toto and Mercedes. Respect, a show of humility, which goes an awful long way. It shows a vulnerability that they're willing to put themselves into that position, even though people have always looked at them as the class leaders. They are vulnerable enough to put themselves out there and say, we messed up. Now, if you do the same kind of things, if we do the same kind of things when we get it wrong, other people around us will experience, I imagine, those same kinds of feelings. Now, what does that do? What does that do for my relationship with Toto Wolff or with Mercedes? Well, what I feel today, because of hearing that interview yesterday, was this sense of respect that I now look at them and I look at them with a newfound level of respect. I had respect for Mercedes anyway but a new found level. They've opened up or unlocked a new level in my perception of them at this higher plane of respect that I now have for them. Now, that might mean that I show more respect towards them when I'm talking about them, when I'm thinking about them, when I'm writing about them or talking about them on television, for example. It might mean that if they make a mistake in the future, which they absolutely will, I will give them a little bit more leeway for that. I won't be quite as harsh or critical. I will not jump to the wrong conclusion, but perhaps be open enough to give them the space and time to accept that they got it wrong because they've done it this time. And imagine that in your world. Imagine that if you're doing the same kind of things. Imagine when you make your next big mistake and yet you're humble enough to come out and admit it and accept it and recognise it. Imagine if you do that and what the people around you might start to feel in the same way my feelings for Mercedes and Toto have changed a little bit based on what he said. Imagine how people would then treat you differently, how much more leeway you might get the next time you make a mistake. Now imagine it the other way around. Imagine if Toto and Mercedes had come out with the opposite 
way of addressing this, where they had blamed somebody else, for example, or they failed to admit they got it wrong and put it down to somebody else or something else that wasn't their fault. Now, that's not necessarily immediately going to create a negative impact on me, but it's certainly not going to create the positive one that I feel today. And if they are blaming others, then that probably is going to give me a negative level of respect towards them. I'm going to lower my respect level based on those kind of things. And we do hear that. We hear that all the time from certain teams and certain drivers where they want to blame others. They want to criticise others. They want to put others down rather than lift others up. And what Mercedes did was they paid respect to the teams at the front that have got it right, the Red Bulls of this world. And they put themselves in a position of vulnerability to say we weren't as good as them. Now, in our lives, if we're able to do that, instead of being negative, switch it to being positive. Instead of putting uh, somebody else down, build somebody else up. The impact that can have on those around you when they see that can be quite profound and long reaching. And it will have an even bigger impact the next time you have an interaction of a similar level. My son was watching a football match the other day. I was watching it with him on the sofa. And the team that he supports made a pretty bad mistake in defence and it led to a goal. And he immediately leapt on criticising and shouting at the defenders for the team he supports. And it was talking about how terrible they were and that was awful. They've got to be sacked. We need new players. And I said to him, mate, I said, listen, how about if you looked at this a slightly different way? I said, instead of being negative about your team, what about if you were positive about the other team? If you switch the negative feelings and the negative emotions for positive ones, same scenario, same incident, still going to result in a goal against your team. But what if you flipped it to the fact that the attacking team did a really good job, that they worked it through the defence in a really skillful way, great uh, great series of passes, cut the defence open, and that was a pretty good goal, because it was. Imagine if you focus on that bit, on the positive nature of that particular incident, rather than the negative bit, where you build somebody else up rather than pulling somebody down. And that's what I'm talking about here. With Mercedes building up Red Bull, saying, you were great, you did a great job, so much so that we've now got to start looking at the way you're doing things and probably assess, we've assessed that the way we've done it isn't good enough and we're going to probably start looking at going your direction. That's how good you were. That's building somebody else up rather than pulling someone down and saying it's their fault. The regulations were unfair or this, that and the other. It's somebody else's fault. That's being negative and pulling somebody else down. The great leaders of this world lift up those around them. That's literally what leaders should be doing, lifting the people up around them. Leaders in a company are great leaders when they lift people up, not trying to build themselves up, but they're lifting up the people around them. And that's what I saw from Toto Wolf. That's what created this extra level of respect. And that is what I would encourage all of you, all of us, to try and think more about. And it's not always easy. I said at the very beginning, it's actually very hard to do that. It's a difficult thing to do because admitting you're wrong by its very nature is hard. No one really wants to do it. It's one of those things that just comes difficult to us. We don't want to accept that we got it wrong. But if we do, not only is it the very first step onto getting onto the right path, and Mercedes, by accepting and admitting they've got their car wrong, they have now got a very clear path on how to get it right. All the time you fail to accept that you got it wrong, which Mercedes have done, by the way, over the last year or so. All the time you fail to admit your failings, all the time you refuse to accept you got it wrong, you are continuing down a path that's not getting you closer to success. The very second you hold your hands up and say, we messed up here, we got it wrong, that's the very first step to getting it right. Mercedes now have a direction they can go in, and it may be the Red Bull direction, but they have a direction they can start to work on in the background that will change their car, hopefully for the better, getting them closer towards success. And the first step to doing that was accepting they got it wrong. Again, the same thing applies to us. All the while we persist or we refuse to accept our mistakes, we are never going to be able to correct them. The only time you can correct a mistake is once you've accepted there was a mistake in the first place. And so if we're talking about performance 
And every one of you, I have no doubt, even if in just the smallest way, listen to this podcast because you're striving for improved performance somewhere in your life. You want to get better at something. You want to find lessons from Formula One to help you to improve your performance. So if your goal is to improve performance, the very first step to improving any performance after a mistake is realising and accepting the mistake happened. Because after that, that's the first day in which you can start work on a new plan, on a new path, heading towards making things better. If that mistake you made has hurt somebody else, if it's affected somebody else negatively, of course, there's another element to this. Accepting you made the mistake and apologising not only benefits you and puts you back on the right path or can allow you to get back on the right path, but it can also have a huge impact on the person whose lives you negatively affected in the first place with that mistake or with that action. Apologising can go a long way at an emotional level to getting the other person who was affected to accept that apology, to give some sort of forgiveness. That can have a benefit for them, but also for you. If you know you've got some kind of forgiveness or acceptance from the person who you're apologising to, that also allows you to move forward. So all of these little elements can come from that very first step. The acceptance of the mistake, the apology, if that's what's required, and then working on the plan to make it better. Now, that plan can come in all manner of different forms. It can be a plan that can make life better for you. It can be a plan that makes life better for the people you affected with the mistake. But overall, it all comes down to performance, comes down to success in whatever form that looks like for you. In Formula One terms, that's exactly what Mercedes have started to do. They've started the process of striving for better performance by accepting they made a mistake. They have apologised to fans, and I'm sure they've apologised internally to their team. They've apologised to Lewis Hamilton, to the drivers. We know that. We hear it on the radio. That humble humility that the team, with the stature that Mercedes have, that have shown that, is going to have far-reaching effects for all of those people. And it's hard to do, it hurts sometimes, but it is one of the most important steps in rebuilding after a failure, accepting that failure happened, and even more importantly, accepting the reasons for it. If it was your fault, hold your hands up. It doesn't have to be that you did it on purpose, it could have been a complete accident. With Mercedes' case, they were following numbers which looked good, but what they found is those numbers weren't good. There is some reason why they were getting data that didn't look like it was high quality data coming out of their own systems. Now, that is all their responsibility. It's all their fault. It's their cock up. But it would be very easy to blame somebody or something else for that. They haven't done it. And that is one of the biggest lessons I hope you'll take from this little story. Accepting when you've done something wrong not only is cathartic for you, but it can be hugely important for the people who hear that message. It can be important to the levels of respect that others will show you. And that can be important further down the line when other mistakes happen, when things or challenges come along and you need someone else's support. If they've got respect that's been built from moments like this, you're likely to get that, that support much quicker, much more effectively. And all of those elements still lead towards performance. So if performance and high performance is the goal, opening up yourself to being vulnerable, accepting you've made a mistake and owning it, admitting it and putting it out there for the world to see is one of the most powerful steps you can take to getting back onto that journey towards the high performance you might be after. Right. I think that's about it. Uh, I hope that you'll take a huge amount from today. The idea of listening is something I'm a massive believer in. I'm hugely passionate about it. It's something I am still learning and practicing today. Those examples I gave you from a parent are born from my own experiences that I'm trying at the moment to get better at. None of us are perfect at it. None of us ever will be perfect at it. But the more we can practice it, the more we can develop those skills, the better we'll become. And what I'm trying to explain to you is the benefits from having those skills in our locker are way further reaching than most people appreciate. As I said earlier, relationships are at the heart of everything we do as humans, whether you're a Formula One team or anybody in a family or a friend group, any kind of business or industry. 
relationships are at the heart of our species. And so if we can get better at improving the bonds between those relationships, we will become stronger. Communication and importantly, listening is at the heart of that. And when we mess things up, when we get things wrong, again, Formula One team or otherwise, accepting and admitting you've made a mistake can be a hugely important part of the process to getting back on track and heading for the kind of performance you're after in the first place. I hope you have a wonderful week, guys. Thank you so much again for listening. Please share this podcast. The one thing I ask you guys to do is tell other people, share it around, tell as many people as you can tag people in the share, including me, and I will help to repost that as well. But have a wonderful week, everybody. Thank you so much again. And in the meantime, remember this, do the right things, do the things right.